Adam Rousey today to talk about GPP game scores. If you used the established the run in-season package last year for DFS, you saw these game scores. They are the brainchild of Adam who brought them over to us and we've worked on improving them. Before we dive in too much further though, want to note that today's podcast is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. They still have their Best Ball Mania 3 contest going on, $2 million to first, $1 million to second place over there. So some insane prize pools, and they're going to match your first deposit up to $100 if you use promo code ETR. It's also a phenomenal way to get ready for your home league draft. It's home league draft season, so if you want to prep, don't do a free mock draft. Do a, do a draft over on Underdog Fantasy, and again, use promo code ETR for up to $100 in free entries. Back to today's episode. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here, Mike. Preseason's done. Training camp's done. DFS is around the corner. It's exciting. It it is exciting. I, I've gotten some of some of the workload off my shoulders, been grinding the last week or so, and I'm starting to feel the excitement for week one, the light at the end of the tunnel. So really looking forward to that. For people that aren't familiar with GPP game scores, essentially we're giving each game a grade on how good of a game stack it is for tournaments in GPPs each week for NFL DFS, both for DraftKings and for FanDuel. I'll quickly bring up an example if you're watching on the YouTube. Uh, I'll bring this up again later, but I just want you to see it. All the scores are relative to one another. So there's no like one score that in a vacuum means good or bad. It's just, they're all ranked relative to one another. And we'll get more into the methodology, but why this is important is because game stacking is one of the most important aspects of NFL DFS tournaments. There's, you know, there's gonna be some weeks where maybe you're going to be heavier game stacks. Some weeks you're going to be lighter, but overall Adam Levitan is going to release an article looking at the Millie maker. And what he found is the highest leverage roster construction attack so teams that are finishing at the top versus what the rest of the field is doing are double stacks the team that the teams that finish in the top 100 in the million maker are double stacking at a higher rate than the rest of the field they're also bringing it back with an opponent at a higher rate than the rest of the field essentially they are game stacking more than the rest of the field you don't have to do that to win but it's your best leverage point that's what we're looking for is leverage and if you want to get even more granular, it's wide receivers. So understanding the importance of game stacking, uh, how did you develop GPP game scores in the first place, Adam? Uh, it, it started honestly in, in 2020, way back during the middle of the pandemic. And um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm more of a hand builder as myself as far as building DFS lineups. So what I often ran into when, you know, if you're building five to seven or seven to 10 lineups each week is, Hey, there's so many games on a main slate. You can make an argument for 80% of them why they could be good game environments to attack in a GPP. So I would often run into a hurdle of what I called lineup block, whereas you know <laughs> I could identify two to three games that looked good and I could build a couple lineups around that. But you know you don't want to go too heavy. You want to balance your exposures appropriately. And so my biggest thing was trying to figure out what are the key variables that we can look at and how can we take those variables and put it into kind of a simplified visual to help identify the best game stacking environments? And uh, it, it started pretty, pretty elementary um, as far as the math was concerned, but it's kind of developed over the last couple of years and um, still going strong today now with ETR's projections. 
Yeah. And I don't think you need anything too crazy on the math side. Essentially what we're looking for is an objective quick snapshot to tell us what are the best games to stack. And you mentioned it's, it's tough to figure out the variables. Uh, it's also was tough when you brought this to us and we've been tweaking it, you know, over the past year or two to try and get it in the best shape possible. Essentially we want this to be predictive of where the most leverage is for a game stack. Like we're looking for leverage. The tough part, Adam, and we've gone back and forth on this is there's, it's difficult from a math perspective to train this on a target variable because we're not necessarily looking for the best game stacks to project fantasy points. That would be a lot easier. Um, But ownership we know is such a huge aspect of tournaments because you're getting a higher payoff, a bigger reward when you hit on a stack that comes with lower ownership and also the salaries and the value of the players matter. So trying to somewhat subjectively weight those factors is essentially what we've been doing. It's not kind of like this hard corded formula, because again, we're not like our target variable isn't fantasy points. It would be ROI, which is also kind of hard to pin down depending on what, what contest you're in. So any high level thoughts about what goes into this and, you know, the fun and trying to balance those categories. Yeah. I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. There's, you know, uh, there's lots of variables that you have to take into account and you don't want to, you know, ownership, for example, is a, is a pretty volatile variable. Um, I remember when I first started this, there were games that, you know, across the board, you would, you'd see average ownership of like 3% or something or, or 4%. And, and, you know, that would heavily skew the, the table and how it would look at the end of the day when you plug in all the numbers and everything, even if that game didn't really smash that ownership number would really drive it down. Or consequently, if you had a game that had a really high ceiling that had a really high average ownership, then it could skew it as maybe not looking as good on the table. So you want to be able to, the, the challenge that I, in the, in the exercise, I think we, we encountered the most in the first year we ran this last year was just trying to find the right balance. Um, especially when it, when it comes to ownership. Um, because there's there's certainly leverage there when you have low ownership games, but you also want to be able to find the right combo of uh, finding ceiling and identifying you know uh, you know game environments that aren't just the lowest ownership or the highest ownership um, or the most expensive or the least expensive. So yeah, there was a lot of tweaking in that, um, but I think we're at least how we have it right now. I think we're at a good spot. Yeah, I'm excited for this season. You know, we're looking at, and and I do think the introduction to ceiling projections has helped a lot. So we're looking at kind of like the base value of the players, taking into account the salary, also the total salary of the stacks, or like how hard it is to actually build um, the, the ownership and, and, you know, all those things as far as the game environment goes to try and balance. Because yet, if you have a stack that's like, you can see here, like Casey, Arizona, if you're looking right now, these game scores are for week one, but they're super raw because we're not totally done with our projections. You know, it's more than a week out. We also have, I, I just threw in some half-baked average ownerships for the team. So Casey, Arizona, highest total, highest ceiling game, but it doesn't come in great on, it comes in like neutral on the game scores because uh, because the ownership that I threw in there like is projected to be much higher than any right. other game. And I'll talk right. about that. Yeah, I think Juju is Juju Smith Schuster well, was priced at his DK one, his DK week one price is like fifty, is it fifty-five or something like that? I checked it earlier this morning. 
but yeah, it's pretty yeah. low. It's also it's very obvious game. Um, right. but yeah, so you you don't. So the two sides of the corner, yeah, you don't want to necessarily always take the highest ceiling game, the highest total game. If the ownership's going to be so outweighed relative to the rest of the field, the flip side is you can't take a game with an average 3% ownership. If it doesn't have enough legs to get there from a ceiling perspective. So we're trying to put that all together. You do a write-up each week, which is really helpful to kind of break down why games rate well or why they don't rate well, um, because we're giving people the final score, not all the components necessarily. And it can be helpful to understand why games rate or don't rate well, especially when it, it comes out pretty close in terms of game scores. Yeah. And that's, you know, the write-ups I, I try to keep pretty brief, but yeah, they're how I typically structure it is I, I talk about some of the low, lower ownership games. What are some of the pros and cons there? Um, some of the higher ceiling games and then some of the, the higher value games where we're getting good value on salaries, you know, on DraftKings or FanDuel. Um, the, the the sweet spot is where you can find games that are plus on multiples of multiple of those variables. So if you have a game that you know the, the ownership is relatively in check and you're getting a decent ceiling projection, you know those are the games I get the most excited about, and those are the ones I try to hone in on on the write up. Um, but it's good to understand. I think it's I think it's really important to understand why each game grades out the way that it does uh, before you start building. Yeah. And we'll update the game scores throughout the week. And you'll kind of sometimes tweak that article if needed, because it's, it's a changing dynamic, you know, as ownership changes, the score is going to change as guys get ruled in or out, things are going to change. So this is all kind of like up to date immediately based on our latest ownership projections and fantasy point projections and ceiling and whatnot. Um, the other reason why I think it's important to have some idea about why games rate well or not, well, there's two reasons. One, based on what you like with the rest of your player pool, you know, if there's a chalk running back that you just absolutely love and want to fit in, you're more likely to take a game stack that rates well in GPP game scores because of the ownership. Whereas if you have a few, you know, maybe low priced, unowned like leverage plays throughout your lineup you might just say okay i'm, I'm gonna jam, jam casey arizona because the, the ceiling that's the highest ceiling i've already got the leverage that i need so that's what we're thinking of as gpp players the ownership that we use is for a large field tournament so you do sometimes have to make tweaks for small field and sometimes in small field adam i'll even try and jam like two game stacks together and almost my yeah. entire lineup is two game stacks and this that's where the GPP game scores helps a lot too, where I can sort of mix the game with a super high ceiling and a game that might have a little bit less ownership. Do you have any thoughts as far as you know, like using the GPP game scores to build your DFS stacks or small field versus large field? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, and we talk about this a lot at ETR in general, but game stacking, you can really kind of lean more into the game stacking on small and on smaller field tourneys because you don't have to have the top one person, the top, you know, the, the top optimal outcome on your lineup in order to, to do well in a tournament on a small field. So um, yes, in theory, smaller field, you know, the game scores, you could really, really utilize well in smaller field tournaments. But I think, um, you know, for larger field, it also works as well. Um, you know, a lot of times on the write-up, I'll talk about opportunities to mini stack. Um, and I think, you know, 
that's something you can use in a larger, that's a strategy you can use in a larger field tournament where you don't have to necessarily, I don't have to pick two games that I want to heavily stack from and that's my lineup, but maybe I'll pick bits and pieces from a higher ceiling game and put that in a, in a larger field tourney. But if I'm playing in a higher stakes, smaller field tourney, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll go, I'll go find a, uh, a game that maybe the ceiling isn't as high, but I know I can, I can hammer like a, a, a thorough stack in there, you know, two wide receivers and a bring back and a QB, or I pick two games, like you said. And and I think those are really viable strategies for smaller field. Um, I think but- you, you bring up a really good point too, that sometimes I think people get backwards, which is the increased correlation is better for a small field tournament because we have to get less things right. Right. It reaches a diminishing point of returns in large field where it actually reduces your ceiling because two pass catchers on the same team, they're positively correlated in general, but like their 99th percentile outcomes probably aren't because you want one guy to have, you know, an alpha game. So sometimes in small field, I'll go beyond the double stack and one bring back. Like if the value is there, I've done, I I won the Thunderdome one week with, I believe it was, a triple stack with two bring backs, you know, like that's extreme. That doesn't usually happen. That's usually only if there's some sort of injury and you've got multiple low price players. But I think it was a week where I, I was able to double stack Kansas city, Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, and Travis Kelsey and bring it back with two mega cheap yeah. jets because they were, they had an injury. And so there was a lot of buying for like these three K wide receivers on DraftKings. Um, yeah. So I think it's a, they they get that wrong sometimes the field uh i did want to note too that late swaps really important i think when you're doing your game stacks so mentioned this casey arizona game like i'm not sure at all right now where it'll finish in our final scores but let's just say it's middle of the pack because the ownership's so high um but it's you know the the ceiling keeps it forward that's a late game week one so sometimes what i'll do is play some contrarian one-off plays early and build around that chalk stack late because it has the highest ceiling. If my contrarian plays hit, and this is again where it's beneficial to understand why games rate the way they do, those contrarian plays hit, I'm I'm keeping that stack with a huge ceiling because I don't need to get any more leveraged on the ownership component. It's almost like if we you would do the GPP game scores over removing the ownership component because it, it, it ceases to matter. At that yeah. point, whereas the opposite, if my plays early flop, the chalk hits, I got to get off that game. I don't care how high the ceiling is because I have no chance of winning this tournament because the ownership's going to be too flooded on it. Right. And I think it is interesting. I've, I've noticed that a lot of the I mean, it makes sense. A lot of the afternoon hammer games are going to see more concentrated ownership because people are pivoting off from early plays or they're late swapping. And I think, you know, just how the league structures their schedule, they're often going to have those more entertaining games in the afternoon anyways. So be be prepared. Just, you know, if you're going to heavy stack those late games, just understand that you probably need to be contrarian elsewhere on the the early side um, just to keep balance in your lineup. And you need the information too. So if you go chalk early and it hits, you're kind of in a spot where you still don't know what to do with that late game stack. Uh, If you're contrarian, you, you know what to do one way or the other. Most of the time, there was a week where the Bills Arizona played in the late game. I think it was the game the Bills lost, and like Kyler Murray, Hail Mary. But that's a stack I may not have played 
if it was an early game. I went contrarian early. It worked out well enough. I was able to stick with just the highest ceiling game. So definitely advantages. Think through the start times of games and try and interpret the GPP game scores through that lens. I also want to talk about sometimes the DraftKings and FanDuel GPP game scores can be pretty different. And that seems confusing to people. There's a few reasons why. One, Adam, the the scoring system matters. So on FanDuel, the half PPR and you don't get those bonuses. So it's more efficiency-based and less volume-based. So sometimes the games with more touchdowns, higher team totals, rate better on FanDuel. Like looking at week one, for example, you can see that Green Bay and Minnesota starts to separate more from the secondary stacks on FanDuel. And that's because the efficiency in that game is projected to be high, not necessarily guys racking up catches. Whereas another you know, game, I think it was like the Pittsburgh game, like Pittsburgh rates as an okay stack on DraftKings, but a bad one on FanDuel. And that's because they have guys that rack up their points via catches. Maybe they get those 100-yard bonuses with like Najee Harris, Deontay Johnson, but it's not a ton of efficiency. So that's one of a few reasons why DraftKings and FanDuel are pretty different. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for anyone using the game scores, um, you know, like in my personal experience, just just build based on, you know, what you're most comfortable with. If you feel like you are better building lineups on FanDuel and you can kind of better account for that scoring system, um, you know, stick with that. And, Mm -hmm. but I, I also think that there's some value in kind of understanding how the games relate, how the game scores kind of compare on both sites and you kind of like run through your head. Okay. Why is this, why is this game scoring better on FanDuel? If it's scoring better on FanDuel as opposed to DraftKings, can I maybe even get a little bit of a discount on DraftKings as far as ownership goes? Um, Just playing with thoughts like that. And yeah, I mean, I, myself personally, I, I I'm more familiar with the with the DK scoring, so um, I always try to you know my 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 default building strategies to account for PPR and 100 yard bonuses. But um, I think it's I'm, important to understand why why those scores differentiate between the sites. Certainly, I'm with you. Uh, I have a bit more affinity for playing on DraftKings, and again those. Bigger correlations, bigger game stacks are better on DraftKings because guys can get there in different ways. Like one guy can go eight for 100, hit the bonus, have a huge game. Another guy goes three for 50 and scores two touchdowns. On FanDuel, it's it's tougher for the extra pieces to get there. So I'm less likely to have a huge game stack on FanDuel than on DraftKings. And also sometimes, Adam, the ownership's just so different between the two sites. Like Dink and I do our Established a Million show and it's like at tight end often too, it can be weird where we're like, you know, George Kittle's a bad play on DraftKings, even though he's a better value and cheaper, but his ownership's going to get so inflated. And then he's not going to be played at all on FanDuel. And it's like, if he has one of his ceiling games where he scores 35 points, the salary is going to be moot, right? The fact that he's a worse projected value doesn't matter. And then we're dusted on DraftKings for not playing him there, but that's okay. He was pretty chalky anyways. And then FanDuel we're in a really good spot because he wasn't owned as heavily. So it's a similar dynamic happens with game stacks as well, where just the way the salary structure, the roster construction, the ownership all come together, that that's why you can have different stacks do well. And from a broader perspective, Adam, it's that mindset of 
we don't know exactly what is going to happen and we're not pretending that we do, you know? So that's why we'll make these plays based on ownership on different sites. Cause we're not going to sit here and say, we know exactly what George Kittle is going to do this week. He's a fade. We're saying George Kittle has this range of outcomes and we get the right reward on FanDuel if it hits and we don't on DraftKings. And it's the same for, you know, different types of game stacks. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Um, anything you have to add as far as the GPP game scores itself or playing in tournaments for um, for DFS this upcoming season? Um, I would just uh, I would just implore people to look at the write ups when they come out, um, taking all of the ETR content, especially on you know DFS side, the podcast leading up to the week. Uh, you know, there's a lot of content out there, but as I said on the top, you know this the the game scores is designed to try to just condense everything into one solid table, one visual to kind of give you perspective on where you can attack, where, what makes sense on DraftKings, what makes sense on FanDuel, um, you know, depending on what tournaments you're playing. So, you know, I, I would say just kind of take everything into account and, uh, and make, you know, your best informed decisions. But, you know, I, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll relay um, and I've, I've said, I told you this in our previous discussions was that I don't want people to use the game scores as like a Bible, a, a tell all be all of like how, of which games to stack. Like if you see, you know, uh, Kansas city, Arizona, for instance, we just talked about for week one, if that's the top game score for some reason, or if green Bay, Minnesota is the top two game scores, I don't necessarily want people to just target those individual games, but use the table as a guide to kind of say, Okay, why are those two games at the top? Maybe I'll concentrate a little bit more exposure on those two games, but I want to mix in some other games kind of in the middle of the table as well that look intriguing. Um, so that's another, just another general message I want to get out to the people before they start building this year. And it's, I, I love when I'm surprised like one way or the other on how the game scores spit out. So maybe a game like Casey Arizona doesn't rate as well as I expect. And as you dig in, there is some nuance here. Like we're looking at the average ownership of that game, but maybe there's a couple plays that are projected for low ownership and you can still get exposure to the ceiling of the game without having the penalty of the ownership. So understanding how they work, reading those write-ups, super important. I'm really excited for the season to play some more tournament lineups. Um, but yeah, Adam, thank you so much for bringing game scores to ETR. And Adam is also a member of our research team. So uh, we'll, we'll continue to try and improve the game scores where we can. But like we said, I think they're in a pretty good shape and excited for week one. Can't Thanks wait for it, Mike. Yeah, I know. It's. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out in Vegas for the uh, Bills game. Just I'm drafting some fantasy teams out in Vegas uh, week one. So I'm flying back before the oh, main man. slate uh, over the weekend, but I'll be out there when the Bills play the Rams. So that'll be that'll be exciting. No GPP game score for that one since it's a one-off <laughs> game, not on the main slate. But um, yeah, that KC Arizona game already sticking out like a really fun discussion to have. Oh, Nick yeah. and I will have established a million for you week one, and we'll definitely use the GPP game scores to help us cover that. All right. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. Really excited for week one. Hope you are too. Best of luck this season.